you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 this morning, and boy, there's a lot there. So before we get going, I wanted to give a public service announcement this morning. Oh, I was right. By show of hands, who in here has ever read any of the Left Behind books or watched any of the Left Behind movies? Okay, here's my public service announcement. If you think that that is correct eschatology, you are going to be offended this morning. <laughs> because we are going to clearly demonstrate that there is no, not going to be God taking the Christians out from the world before tribulation. That is not in the Bible. Um, but we are going to cover the verse that everybody goes to to say that there is going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. Verse 10, we'll get there, okay? That's your public service announcement for this morning. Got another question for you. So one of my favorite video games growing up on regular Nintendo, probably a lot of you don't even know what regular Nintendo is, Okay? One of my favorite Nintendo games on regular Nintendo was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. All right? Anybody know? Anybody remember Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you played Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, okay, you were, you were the little guy with the black hair. Anybody remember his name? Little Mac. His name was Little Mac, right? And he was this little guy. Right? And, and every, single, every single fighter that you fought with Little Mac, he was twice your size. Right? Maybe, maybe it was Soda Popinski or, or King Hippo. Right? right? All of these guys were like twice the size of Little Mac. Right? The Church of Philadelphia reminds me of Little Mac a little bit. They are a small Weak church. They don't have much power. Jesus even says that to them. Probably have no position of authority in the community. And they're, and they're being persecuted and opposed by two separate groups of people. So I'm going to pray. And then we're, we're going to talk about this morning the church in Philadelphia. Let's pray. God, everyone in this place this morning needs your word. We need you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit and through your word. We need to see in this text this morning the beauty and the majesty and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus and how he helps his churches, even those that appear to have little power and are very small, possibly in number. Jesus is great, 
And he does great things through faithful churches. May we be a faithful church. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. So I'm, I, I preached a couple weeks ago from the Church of Pergamum, and I've organized my sermon today the same way I did back then. Okay, so first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at who the letter is addressed to. We're going to talk a little bit about who they are. Second thing we're going to go to is we're going to talk a little bit about the description of Jesus. How does Jesus describe himself to this church? Then we're going to go to how Jesus commends this church. What commendations does he give to this church? What are they doing well? And then... Hey, we don't have to go over any rebukes today because Philadelphia, like Smyrna, they're doing only good things, okay? And then we're gonna go to the promises that Jesus gives to this church. So point number one, who is the, who is the church of Philadelphia? Who is the church, uh, this letter addressed to? Look at verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia... Talk just a little bit about this church. It's a very, very interesting church. They're, they're about 30 miles away from the of Smyrna. They're about 30 miles from the Aegean Sea. And on the south side of the city, there was a river. And this river caused the Philadelphia to have very fertile land. And so Philadelphia's primary thing that it grew because of this fertile land was grapes. It was known for its really great vineyards, which is interesting because the god, the god Dionysus also had a statue in the city, and he happens to be the god of wine. So they, are, so they have a very, very fertile land growing grapes, but the city was actually established and built on a fault line as well. So constantly throughout its history, Philadelphia was always concerned about earthquakes. It was always feeling tremors to the point where oftentimes people who lived in the city would actually go outside of the city and put up temporary dwelling places for them to live outside of the city because it was safer in there. It was safer out there. In A.D. 70, the entire city was wiped out by an earthquake. And like I said earlier, along with Smyrna, Philadelphia is the only other church where Jesus does not have any rebukes for this church. But this church is the only one that has as many promises as it does. So, we, we're going to look at six promises at the end here. We're going to look at six promises that Jesus gives to this church. So apparently, this church needs encouragement. Because that's uncanny. Jesus doesn't give that, many, uh, that much encouragement to any other church. So this church must really be trying to hang on for dear life and really need some encouragement. So, so that's the city. That's who this, the letter is addressed to. Now let's look at the description of Jesus. Point number two, Jesus' description of himself. We're gonna be in the second half of verse seven. It says this. The words of the Holy One 
the true one. So Jesus is holy. Holy just means, it means set apart, right? But Jesus is not just set apart morally. Jesus is set apart transcendently from his creation. So transcendence is, is he is other than and he is distinct and above all that he has created. He is other than, above, and distinct from all he has created. He is transcendent. But at the same time, he was also one of us. So he was transcendent. He was all together, separate and distinct from us. But he actually became one of us. Will you put John chapter 6, verses, uh, six verse 66 up there, please? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Look at verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus describes himself as the Holy One. He is set apart, yes, morally, but he is transcendent. He is distinct and above all that he has made. Jesus is the Holy One. He says, he says I am the true one. So not, not only did Jesus just not lie, not only did Jesus just all the time tell the truth, it's more than that. Jesus is the truth. He says in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the, he is the truth incarnate. He's not, it's not just that he doesn't lie or, or always tells the truth, but he, what he is is truth. John, 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus is the truth. Just like Fauci is the science. <laughs> Had to. Had to. So, with these two attributes, transcendence and truth, what is Jesus claiming? What is he saying to this church about his very nature when he, call, when he calls himself holy, transcendent, and truth? What is he saying to the church? He's saying, I'm God, right? He's saying, I am God. If we look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, I'm just going to read it. When, the, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. This is the slain saints in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice about Jesus. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Jesus is claiming. If we studied the I am statements last year. If that's not enough to convince you that Jesus claimed to be God, right here should be. He's claiming himself to be holy and true and transcendent, and those are attributes of Yahweh himself. 
Jesus is claiming to this church to be God. Holy one, true one. Let's continue in verse seven. Who has the key of David. So, he's got a key. Jesus has a key. He's holy. He's transcendent. He is the truth. And he's got a key. What does the key unlock? Let's look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. What is this key that Jesus has? What does it unlock? And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, talking about David, and established forever, and do as you have spoken, verse 24, and your name will be established and magnified forever, eternally, saying the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. The key of David is a reference to the eternal kingdom of God himself. So so Jesus is the one who has the key that unlocks eternal life. The key unlocks the door of eternal life through the salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. The key, the key that he has is the gospel. The key that he has is unlocks the eternal salvation that is that is in him, that is because of his his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. That's the key. That's the key that's around his neck that unlocks the eternal kingdom of David. That's why it's called the, the key of David, because God promises David that his kingdom is eternal. And Jesus is the one who has the key to that eternal kingdom. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 22. This is where, this is where Jesus is actually directly quoting in this verse. So let's, let's read the whole, the whole second half of verse 7 together. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Let's read Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22. We're doing Bible drill this morning because Revelation, you got you to interpret Revelation with other scriptures. You got to interpret scripture with scriptures. Otherwise, we're all going to be sitting around looking at each other. Verse 20. So context here. God has put a man named Shebna. It's a great name. He's put a man named Shebna over his, over his household, over all of the household of Judah. And Shebna is a terrible servant and master of the house. He's terrible. So God replaces him. God is going to replace him with a man named Eliakim. Okay? And that's where we're going to pick up. So Shebna, terrible job. Eliakim going to be appointed to be over the, all the household of Judah. Verse 20, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority, God's authority. He's got, he has the authority of God to his hand, Eliakim, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house 
of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So this man, Eliakim, he's a type of Christ. He's a typology of Jesus himself. He's pointing forward to Jesus who has the true authority, the true key of David that allows people into the eternal kingdom of God because of his finished work. Jesus has the sovereign authority to allow whomever he wills into the kingdom of God. And that may... It may make us all feel a little certain way, okay? But that's what it means. When he says, I open and no one can shut. I shut and no one can open. Jesus is the one who unlocks salvation for whom God pleases. He is the one. You don't have the key. I don't have the key. Jesus is the one who has the key. John chapter 5. Verse 21 and then 25 and 26. Let's take a look at them. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is sovereign over all salvation and eternal life. He is the sovereign. So I want you to bear with me here for a minute. This might be a little bit of a stretch. I might be reaching a little bit here, but play along with me if you, if you will. I know that sounds a little weird when we're talking about the Bible, Okay. But, but, but work with me. See if, see if this makes sense. Go back to Isaiah 22, 22, and it says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. How many of you in here are wearing your keys on your shoulders? They got your keys in your pocket, right? Because the keys are small, right? This key, whatever it is, this key it's not like a house key. It's not like a car key. You don't just stick it in your pocket. Eliakim was given a key that he held over his shoulders and his back. Why is that? Well, because in order to get into a household or a, a large city that is protected or walls are up, in order to get in, it's not just a little stick the key in and turn it and you get to walk in. No, there's a big wooden bar that protects people from being able to get into the city. So when somebody has the key, what he would do is he would, men would have to lift this bar up and then the key would be a massive piece of wood that you would stick into the wall that would hold the bar from falling back down in front of the door. So the key is actually a massive piece of wood that sticks in the wall to hold this big barricade up. Anybody know what I'm thinking here? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking possibly I can think another piece of wood that somebody carried on his back that would unlock a particular kingdom as well. Right? Right? I don't know, it's not in the text, but I'm just thinking here 
that possibly this key that's over the shoulder could be a foreshadowing of Jesus carrying a cross, which is a key, which is the key that unlocks eternal life and salvation for all who trust in his life and his death and his resurrection. Maybe. At least it sounds good. And everything that I said was true, I pray. So, summary of Christ and his description of himself. He's transcendent. He's set apart. He's true. He, he holds the key to the eternal kingdom through salvation that is found in him. He is the one who's sovereign over the, the door being open or the door being shut. That's how Jesus describes himself. This is big, this is big Jesus theology here, man. This, is, this, is, this can't get any bigger than this. This is Jesus describing himself as Yahweh himself, sovereign of the universe. Big theology, big Christology. So, point three. What does he commend the church for? He commends the church for three things. Two of them will be found in verse 8, which we're about to read, and one of them is found in verse 10. So let's read all of verse 8 together and then verse 10, and we'll kind of break this thing down here. Verse 8. I know your works. Well, he says that to five of the seven churches, right? Jesus wants his church to know that he is always assessing what they are doing. He is always making sure that the church is functioning as he intends it. He is always looking at the works that, the church, that his churches and his church universal are doing. He is always looking. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. We're not gonna deal with the open door now. We're gonna deal it when we come back with the promises in just a bit. But he has an open door. Jesus has opened the door which no one can shut. I know that you have little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, so when you see the word behold in verse eight, from there on to the end of the verse, in Greek, that's only one sentence. We have a second sentence there. We put a period there. So there's actually a conjunction in the middle of the verse. So the verse actually reads this. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut because I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So that's one sentence in the Greek and there's a middle conjunction that is because and that makes a difference. That's the reason why he set before them an open door. Because they're weak, but because they've also been faithful to the word and they have not denied his name. So let's take a look at those. Let's read verse 10, beginning of verse 10. Third, third thing that he commends them for, you have kept my word about patient endurance. So, so this, is a, this is a Bible faithful church. This is a church that loves to talk to speak the name of Jesus, and this is a church that is doing well in enduring whatever is going on around them. So, number one, this church may be small, and this church may be weak, 
but they preach the Bible and they obey it. So simple. They preach the Bible and they do what it says. That's, what, that's the word kept. It's not just that they're speaking the Bible, but they're actually living what the Bible says. That's what it means to keep something. You're not just hearing it. You're not just being a hearer of the word. You're a hearer and you're a doer of the word. So this church is a hearer and a doer of the word. Unlike in Ephesus, right? They had all the head knowledge, but they had lost their first love. This church, man, they love Jesus. They love Jesus, and their love is causing them to put their hand to the plow. So they're doctrinally sound, they're working hard, and they love Jesus. This is good. This is good stuff. Second, second thing he commends them for, man, you may be small, you may be weak, but you're unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Man, this is convicting. This is convicting for me. I, I had to check my own heart. Am I, am, am, I, am I bold with the name of Christ? Am I, am, I, am I ashamed at times to speak the name of Jesus? I would challenge all of us to think about that. Romans 1.16, Paul writes... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We cannot be ashamed. Matthew chapter 10, 30, verses 32 and 33. You got those up there? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This church is not afraid to speak the name of Jesus. And let me tell you, they're paying for it, too. It's costing them much. Third thing that he commends them for, you may be small, church. You may be weak. But you have emulated my endurance. Right? That's ver verse 10. You have not... You have kept my word about patient endurance. This church knows that Christ perfectly endured all the way to the cross. He perfectly endured all the way to his death. He is the epitome of endurance. And this church has believed that he endured and they are emulating his endurance. And he commends them for staying firm and, and staying faithful and enduring and emulating their Savior as he endured perfectly to the cross. Remember Smyrna. He tells them, be faithful unto death. Right? Jesus tells them, you're faithful to my word. You don't just preach it, but you do it. You love Jesus. And you're enduring well, like your Savior. You're, you look like your Savior in your endurance. So, I have three questions to put before us 
this morning. Question number one. How are we doing as a church on these three things? How are we, do, how are we doing on, on, on not just preaching God's word, but doing it? How are we doing? Obeying it. We, can pre- we, we preach faithfully from this pulpit every Sunday, but are we obeying the word? I'm convicted by this as well. Am I obeying the word? Or do we just come and enjoy a good sermon or a mediocre sermon in my case or maybe not even that good? You might be enduring right now. I don't know. <laughs> How are we doing? Are we, are we hearing the word and doing the word? If not, let's go. We got to get back. Now we got to repent. We gotta do, we gotta do the word. Second question. How are you doing personally on these three things? Are you are you having time in God's word daily on your own? And what you're reading and studying, are you obeying it? Are you you being bold with the name of Jesus? We have a culture out there. There's no hope apart from Jesus. None. How are you doing with that? Are Are you enduring? Are you enduring well? Are you emulating Jesus and his perfect endurance as you endure? And we'll talk about what that's... We're going to have to endure more pretty soon here. Okay? A lot more. Third question. Are you prepared to endure more? Are you prepared, Christian, church, to do to be, to endure more. I'm going to give two examples here. I debated about whether I should do this or not, but I said, would Brent do it? Yeah, he would. So I'm going to do it. It's probably not a good, you know, gauge, but... Number one, I talked about Left Behind earlier and those books and those movies. The main actor in those movies, his name is Kirk Cameron. Some of you know what I'm going to say. Kirk Cameron has recently written a Christian children's book. And he took his Christian children's book to 50 libraries. 50, five, zero. And asked if he could do a reading in those libraries of his Christian children's book that he wrote. And as of now, as far as I know, 50 told him, not a chance. 50. He got zero. But let me tell you what a few of those libraries have allowed in their reading room. 
groomers, and pedophiles. Grown men dressed up as women, reading stuff that no adult in this room wants to read to kids. That's where we are. That's where we are. We're surrounded on all sides by people who hate God. And they're going to do everything that they can to get him out of there. If everything. Zero out of 50 will allow a Christian children's book to be read in their library. And they're allowing groomers and pedophiles in there to read smut to kids. It's coming. Ah, sorry. It's here. Uh, our president just last week signed a bill that was passed by the Senate that is now uh, putting uh, gay marriage into law. And, I, and, I, and I, this, may, this may make some of you feel uncomfortable, but this needs to be said. Those 62 senators that passed that bill, they don't care about, uh, they don't care about a man being able to marry a man. That's not what they care about. They're 62 heterosexual individuals. They don't care about a man being able to marry a man. You know what they do? You know, what, you, know what, you know what's happening? Ephesians 6 is happening. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Why is Ephesians 6 in the Bible? Because we're at war right now. We're at war, church. They're not, they don't care about marriage. They're coming for the nuclear family. They want to destroy the nuclear family. They want to destroy churches. It's coming. It's coming for us. It's coming for us. I'm probably, I probably flagged on YouTube already right now. They're probably going to be at the door waiting on me when we walk out of here. I'm serious. We, we, we just got to know we just got to know. We got to be ready. We can't be scared. We have to know that Jesus is sovereign, and we have to be bold with his name and with the Bible. We can't compromise. Not, I said it two weeks ago. Not one pinch of incense will we give. Not one. We cannot. We cannot, and we will not. Are we prepared? Are we prepared to endure more? Because more is coming. Believe that. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Let's, turn, let's go to a little more positive note. How about that? Hey, six promises. Six promises that, that Jesus not only gives to this church in Philadelphia, but that Jesus gives to us. We need these promises. Based on what we just heard, what I just said, we need these promises too. We need to cling to these promises. Promise number one, verse eight. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. That's encouragement that we need right now. So what does it mean? Oh, great question. 
Somehow I get all the texts where it's like, you got to, you know, have a, you know, some weird Da Vinci Code experience to, I'm just kidding. That's, that's pagan. Okay. So there are two schools of thought with the open door. Okay. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the one that I probably don't think is exactly right first. Sorry, I got to change out here. I ran out of room in my, first thing. In the book of Colossians and in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses this phraseology of an open door to mean an opportunity for the gospel, an open door for opportunity for ministry. So, so one interpretation of, of the open door would be that Jesus is telling them because of their faithfulness, because they're faithful to the word and they're preaching Jesus and they're not afraid to preach Jesus, that God is going, that Jesus is opening a door opportunity for evangelism, possibly even to the unbelieving Jews who are persecuting them in the, in the city of Philadelphia. That sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Here's my thing, though. Anytime you're preaching the gospel, anytime you're being faithful to the Bible, anytime you're being bold with the name of Jesus, there's always an opportunity for evangelism. I, I I don't think Jesus needs to tell them that there's an opportunity because they're already doing that. Does that make sense? They're already, they're already using what they have, the Bible and the name of Jesus, to, to preach and to teach people in the city of Philadelphia. So I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that, that, that he needs to tell them that being faithful to the Bible is going to give you opportunities for ministry because I think they probably already knew that, right? At least that's, at least that's my rationale. What is most likely meant by the open door is that Jesus is telling them, I have opened the door for you for salvation, and no one is able to shut that door. So no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're being persecuted, no matter how the imperial cult is coming to your house and telling you you can't work, unless you give your incense, no matter how much the Jews kick you out of their synagogues and close the door of the synagogue so you can't come in, Jesus is telling them, I will never close the door on you. You are mine. The door is open for salvation to you. That's what I think is more likely. We can debate about it if you want to at some other time. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. He's opened the door that they get to walk through. And these Jews that hate them, that have shut them out of the synagogues and closed the doors, Jesus wants them to know, it doesn't matter matter what doors in this world get closed on you, my door that I've opened for you will remain open. Point number two, promise number two. Jesus promises to vindicate these believers in the presence of their enemies. Let's look at verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is going to vindicate these Christians. They're being persecuted from multiple groups the Jews think they're heretics. 
The Jews think they're, the Jews think they're worshiping a false god. They've, Je, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan because they've rejected their Messiah and they're persecuting those who have believed in the Messiah. So he calls, that's why he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Right? They say that they are Jews and are not. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 2. What, what is Jesus? All of the, these Jews that are persecuting these Christians, they're all Jews by blood. Every one of them are Jews by blood. So what is Jesus saying when he's saying, you are not Jews? What is he saying about them? Let's read verses 28 and 29 from Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. If you're a a believer in Jesus Christ in this place this morning, you're a Jew. You've been grafted in, right? And we're gonna see later, we're gonna see that Jesus actually takes this away from the Jews themselves. In just a minute, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter 45. Jesus is taking that right of being the children of God away from those Jews who have rejected their Messiah. Chapter four, Romans chapter four, verses 22 through 25. That is why faith, was counted to him, that's Abraham, as righteousness. But the words it was counted were not for written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, right? We are, we are saved by faith in Christ and his finished work. There is no other way to be saved. The, the unbelieving Jews, the reason why they're called the synagogue of Satan is because they've rejected their Messiah. The only way we can be saved is by faith in the finished work of Christ. That is it. That is how we are justified. That is how Abraham was found to be righteous. He was found to be righteous because he believed what God said. So what does it mean that he says that they will bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you? This is, this is a reference back to the book of Isaiah. If you'll put Isaiah 45 up there for me. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you. We'll, go, we'll stop it right there. Understand what Jesus is saying here. Who's coming to Israel and bowing down before them? It's the pagan nations. Jesus has flipped this thing on them and he's saying... Jews in Philadelphia, you're the pagans now. He's calling them pagans. You're going to come before these Christians and you're going to bow down as the pagans before the real people of God who are the ones who have trusted in Jesus Christ. This is an incredible indictment against these Jews. Incredible. 
He's taking them away. They think they're the, they think they're the children of God because they're, they're from Israel, because they have a bloodline to Israel. No. Jesus says, nope. You're going to come to these Christians one day. We don't know when. could be judgment day. It could be sometime in time. No day. Not really sure when it is. But ultimately, these Christians are going to be vindicated in the presence of their enemies. That's Psalm 23, right? I prepare a banquet in the presence of your enemies. Number Number three, oh boy. Okay, we're, we're whew, we got here at least. All right, they will keep them. Jesus is going to keep this church from the hour of trial. Verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Here's our verse. That's got to mean Jesus is going to take them off the earth during this trial, right? That's what it says. I'm going to take you from, keep you from the hour of trial. That does not mean that he is going to take them out of tribulation or prevent them. The whole book of Revelation is written to encourage Christians in the middle of tribulation. So why would he tell you this one church, I'm going to take you out and let all the rest of the Christians suffer and die? No. Tereo ek. Tereo ek. That's the phrase to keep from right here. It's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. One other time. By the same author that wrote this right here. Okay? John 17, 15. Will you please put... This is the Lord's high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father. Understand this. John chapter 17. I do not ask you, he's praying to the Father, to take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from... The evil one. This is the same, this is the only other place in all of New Testament the same phrase, tereo ek, is used. And it's used to say, not I'm taking you out so that you don't experience trials. I'm going to keep you in your faith through the midst of those trials. It's like, it's like the Lord's Prayer, right? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's what we need. That's what these Christians needed to hear. The Christians, as soon as the day of Pentecost happened and the church began to grow and the gospel began to spread, Christians were enemy number one across the world since then. Tribulation is not new to the church. This is not some future tribulation that's going to come thousands of years from now. No, we're in the tribulation. Church has been in the tribulation since the church began. Trials are not new for Christians. Right? Bloody Mary murdered hundreds. All of the apostles. I mean, even now today, people in the Middle East who are Christians, being beheaded. You think they're thinking about a future 
tribulation that's going to come. No, they're in a tribulation right now, man. They're about to get their head chopped off. Hopefully that wasn't too harsh if you're a pre-trib dispensationalist. We love you. We love you. Number four. Promise number four. I am coming soon, verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Two questions. What does it mean that he's coming soon? Is this talking about the second coming of Jesus? No, it can't be. We're 2,000 years later. He ain't come yet. Right? Right? He's... He, what, what, this is, this, all of this language is to encourage his church. He, he's not telling them he's going to come and, and return and that's going to be it in their lifetime. That wouldn't encourage this church. This, that, if he hasn't come yet, how is that an encouragement to this church? No, he came to them right now. What he's saying to them is no matter what people are doing to you, no matter what's happening to, to you, no matter what the trial is, I'm going to be there with you in the midst of it and no one's taking your crown. And I will not allow anyone to take the crown that I have given you. That's the encouragement. I'm going to be with you in the midst of trial. Not, not, hey, you got you to hold on tight by yourself. You just got to figure it out. No, I'm coming soon to be with you because no one is going to take the crown that I purchased with my blood from my people. What is the crown? It's salvation. It's the crown of salvation. Jesus wants them to know. I'm, I'm, there's, it's like John 10, right? Right, I'm, we're in the Father's hand and we're in the Son's hand. We are, we are being kept by Jesus himself. We are in the hand of God. No one can snatch us out of his hand. That's what he's saying. I will not allow anyone to take your crown. Number five, we're gonna pick up the pace here. Woo! Jesus is going, verse, verse, uh, verse 12 Jesus is going to make them pillars in the temple of God. I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, the one who conquers. Two things about pillars, okay? Number one, two purposes they served. Pillars were magnificent. They were beautiful and they told a story. Oftentimes the pillars would would have historical events etched in them, right? So what Jesus is saying is, hey, Christian, If you conquer, you are going to be a symbol and a picture of my grace and my mercy found only in Jesus Christ. You're gonna be in my temple forever to God's glory. The saints are going to look at the look at the pillars of other saints. The angels are going to look at the pillars of the saints and God himself is going to look at the pillars of those whom he purchased and he's gonna, he is gonna receive glory for all eternity because of the beauty of those pillars and what they mean. Second thing, pillars are sturdy. They hold up the building, right? This is important to this church. Why? Because they spend their whole lives scared of earthquakes, They spent their whole lives being scared that the ground below them was going to give way. 
They felt tremors all the time from earthquakes. And what Jesus is telling this church is, when you come into the temple of God, the eternal temple, you will not be unsturdy again. You will have for surety. You will have sturdiness. You will have security for all eternity. You will never again have to worry about unsteadiness or things threatening you. That's the promise of being a pillar. They're sturdy, good, perfect, eternal security. Last one, last one. Number six, he gives a threefold promise. He says, I will write on the one who conquers. I'm going to write on him three things. I'm gonna write the name of my God. I'm gonna write the name of the city of my God, which we know from the text is New Jerusalem. And I'm going to write my own new name. So we don't have time to go and bloviate about what all of those things mean particularly. But just know, just know, I'm gonna read this. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from out of heaven, my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He says the word my there four times. So he wants these Philadelphians to know. He wants us to know if we are Christians today. He wants us to know that we are his. We are no longer identified with what we used to be. We are no longer identified with our insecurities. We are no longer identified with being shamed. We are no longer identified with those things. We are identified with God himself. He says the word my four times. This is what he's saying. He's saying child of God, Philadelphian Christian in here this morning, you are mine, 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 mine. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious to us. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would pierce our hearts and that we would wrestle with that word all week long. May you transform our minds and renew our minds and and change our hearts and make us more like Christ this week because of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. It is in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.